previously on Misfortune. But, you know, so white brothers and sisters, white mom, um, never knew my dad, never will. She's just a bad girl. They kept calling me, you know, hey, I think you got a brother out there. I'm like, what? My first cousin called me a couple weeks ago. He said, if I went to Peoria, Illinois, and I said that I was, you know, Maynard Cannon's son, that people would, like, stop and, and want to, like, you know, bring me to their house. And you knew by just talking to him or being around him that you knew he was not somebody to be played with. I guess I'm still wanting to, I don't know, make them proud of me, right? In between interviews in Peoria, Daryl and I spent our time finding things around town that had meant something to his dad. And looking for stuff with Daryl felt very familiar. It's like Daryl and Peter walking around looking for something. Yeah, that never happens. We found the housing projects where Maynard used to live, the grocery and liquor store that he owned, even the spot where he got his shoes shined. Wait a minute, this is the detective agency though. Yeah, his shoe shine job is like somewhere else. But then we went to try and find Maynard's gravesite with only Daryl's fuzzy memory of the cemetery to guide us. Do you know where you're going? Recognize where you're going? I... I... And it was a reminder of how all the things Daryl has searched for intertwine with finding Fenn's treasure. The, the Fenn treasure hunt was, to me, the perfect solution for so many things. First of all, it... it had me focus on, I thought, something that was more valuable than chasing the wrong women and spending stupid money. Then it became, my God, well, how proud would my kids be if I, if I find this damn thing? So we can eliminate this whole area here. We can eliminate this area here. Finding my family has been a curse and, and, and a blessing at the same time. Is, they're all doing such great things. You know, I feel this, uh, what the hell am I bringing to the table? So, to be honestly, and I, I'm ashamed of it, but it's sort of moved from impressing my kids to now my new family. It could right be back there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, should. I know I need to stand down and stand back and, 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 and not even think about that treasure stuff and because obviously the true treasure has been finding them really has. They don't care about this stuff. They, they, they don't. I know that. But it still doesn't make me feel any better that um, just hearing what uh, Carl's doing, what Wayne's doing, you know, was head of the food bank, you know, just some great stuff. Um, I just feel like I need to up my game. There's, wait a minute, yeah. There's the road. This is it, brother. Do you think it would ever feel enough? Like, if you, I don't know, part of me is like, if you had found the Fen treasure, you'd still come here and be like, well, what did the Fen treasure ever do for anybody? You know, like, compared to Carl, compared to Wayne, would it ever be enough? That's a loaded question, because I think you've gotten to know me <laughs> enough. I think you already know that answer. Well, I just wonder if you're still looking for something else. I, th I think 
Honestly, everything that I looked for was buried. I think everything I was looking for is, is in that ground. So I think now it's time to walk. walk around. You found him? Feel different this time? Just feels unfair. So, when you asked me, you know, what I thought about when we were there is I only had one word, and that was unfair. That I didn't get that, uh, that knowledge, or that insight, or that direction. Um, or those arguments I'm sure that we would have had <laughs> um, because all these questions all these silly antics I've done um, all these mistakes I think he would have had something to say um, prior to me making them or Something to say after I've made them. And maybe there wouldn't have been so many. I think truly all of it was, it's in that, it's in that box. This is Missed Fortune, an Apple original podcast from High Five Content, 30 Minutes West, and Outside Magazine. I'm Peter Fickrin. You want a minute without me? When Forrest Fenn announced that the treasure had been found, there were a lot of unanswered questions. Who found it? Where was it? What did the clues mean? But one thing no one's ever been able to nail down, that it feels like we should have known from the start, was exactly how much the treasure was worth. Forrest Fenn never actually said. And when people took guesses, he wasn't very vocal about correcting them. He hid about a million dollars worth of treasure in the Rocky Mountains. Two million dollars worth of treasure. Fame, three million dollar fortune. As much as five million dollars. He says even he doesn't know what it's all worth. I talked to an expert as soon as we had pictures of the actual treasure. And he gave it a back-of-the-napkin estimate of five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars at the time. Maybe more now. And with the caveat that you never know what someone will pay for it as a conversation piece. But a million dollars? not for the actual contents of the chest. And he wasn't the only expert with bad news for the finder. You can't dig anywhere in a, in a national forest without a permit. Okay. You know, if it's not, you know, if, um, if it's not buried, if it's just placed somewhere, uh, it becomes public domain. This is Ben Costello, a retired attorney and treasure enthusiast who researches legal issues surrounding the discovery of valuables. It's so, so basically, um, you know, finders may not be keepers under those circumstances. 
It turns out there are only certain situations in which finding a trove of someone else's treasure results in keeping that treasure. The question in this case is, is this even a treasure trove? Because we know the owner. See, that's the funny thing about it. We know the owner here. The legal term for hidden gold is treasure trove, which just means that someone hid something valuable, but you don't know who. So is it really a treasure trove? That's an interesting question. I don't think it is because the the owner is known. Not only is the owner known, it doesn't really fit any of the categories for which we have legal definitions. It wasn't lost. It wasn't mislaid. It wasn't abandoned. The legal system knows what to do with those types of property. But this is something else. And do we have legal precedent for um, for this kind of thing? I don't know of any. And that has come up. I'm sure there are somewhere. But I've not known of anything like this. The issue is that if the treasure was found on private property, the finder would have needed permission to be there to keep the treasure. If it was found on federal property, like a national forest, you need a permit to take home pretty much anything of substantial value. And so if you don't have a permit, there's a question as well that it may, be the, it may belong to the, the state. If Forest Fen's treasure technically belongs to the state, suddenly there's a lot less mystery around why the finder was choosing to remain anonymous, why he was keeping the location of the treasure a secret. When he finally did pop his head up with that Remembrance of Forrest Fenn article on Medium, some people thought it was fake. Like it was too well written to be real. But it struck journalist Dan Barbarisi as completely legitimate. And so I, I, you know, I very quickly was like, oh no, this is the guy. This, this is the guy. I could see that in my mind pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, at that point it was like, how do I get in touch with him. How do I get him to talk to me? Okay, so then Dan says that he contacted you, and the way he contacted you... Well, actually, why don't you describe to me how he contacted you on the Medium post? This is Outside Magazine's top editor, Chris Kais. Um, so, so Medium has like a private comment function. You can like highlight some text and uh, send a comment to the author directly. And this is the finder of Forrest Fenn's treasure. Jack Stoof. And he gave, you know, introduced himself, gave his email address, and I emailed him after that. Okay. From an anonymous email address that I was using. Got it. Dan got in touch through Medium and interviewed Jack, but Jack never revealed his name. He told as much of the story as he was comfortable telling, but still chose to remain anonymous. He hasn't granted any interviews since. But then, remember that one lawsuit? My devices were hacked and someone stole my solution to the poem. That one actually got some traction. And in late November 2020, a judge ruled in such a way that Fenn's estate would likely have to reveal the name of the person who found the treasure. So Jack decided to get ahead of the story and got back in touch with Dan, who wrote about it for Outside. Chris Kyes did the fact-checking. Basically, going through the article with the person it's about to make sure everything is accurate. And he recorded the call. Um, Okay, so then you found the treasure on Saturday, June 6th, in Wyoming. Where specifically? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The call was brief. Chris mostly asked yes or no questions. Jack was not unpleasant. 
but not exactly happy to be telling his story. Okay, and then uh, you're 32 years old? Yes. Okay. Uh, Michigan native? Um, Jack was a former journalist and writer at The Onion and did some freelance stuff for BuzzFeed and other outlets, which explained the really well-written remembrance of Forrest Fenn. But he changed careers and gone to medical school. At some point in medical school, however, he decided he didn't want to be a doctor, and so now was in the process of dropping out. He'd heard about Fenn's treasure hunt in 2018, and it immediately sucked him in. And... It kind of took hold of you and you were a little bit embarrassed like to talk about it with a lot of people because I think like a lot of treasure hunters, you got a little obsessed with it and were afraid people would uh, would think you were a little crazy for how interested you were in it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I, would, I thought people would think I'm crazy. Okay, I, I have it as, um, I think I got a little embarrassed by how obsessed I was with it if I didn't find it, I would look kind of like an idiot, and maybe I didn't want to admit to myself what a hold it had on me. Yeah, that's accurate. Okay. Jack searched for the treasure for about two years, including 25 days combing the forest where it was eventually found. But he wrote that finding it wasn't what we'd all imagined it would be. The moment it happened was not the triumphant Hollywood ending some surely envisioned, he wrote. It just felt like I had just survived something and was fortunate to come out the other end. He said he still didn't want to say where he'd found it because he didn't want the area to be trampled as a kind of forest fen pilgrimage site. And according to you, Fen expressed the same sentiments. Yes. Okay. With Jack's name going public, we learned both who found the treasure and what might eventually happen to it. Okay, so then we get to what the topic of what you plan to do with the treasure. So one thing is that you haven't done anything to sell the the chest at this point, but once the time is right, you do plan to sell the contents? Yes. Okay. And your first wish is to sell it to a place where it can be viewed by the public? Yes. Okay. Putting the chest on display is a nice nod to the rest of the hunting community. If someone needs a moment with the treasure, they might be able to have it one day. But again, this kind of misses the point of the treasure hunt. No one really cares what the treasure looks like. It's a bunch of coins. The maddening thing about this treasure hunt was how simple it seemed at first, and yet how difficult the riddle really was. And now to know that someone has the answer but won't tell... Instead of going down in history as the solver of the puzzle, Jack is going down as the guy who won't say where it was. How are you feeling about this being out there? Uh, it sucks. Not what I, what I was hoping for. And I think I'll have a lot of you know, crazy people out there to deal with now. Yeah, so. I'm sorry about that. It's yeah. kind of a bittersweet ending to this amazing story. Yeah. Um, But that wasn't actually the end of the story. Because in June 2022, another lawsuit from a guy named Jamie McCracken actually made it to court. 
instead of being dismissed like the others, some even before pretrial hearings. McCracken claimed that Forrest Fenn had breached a contract and defrauded him. Fenn said he'd never moved the treasure, but McCracken contended that Fenn changed the location multiple times. Every time McCracken figured out where it was, he said, Fenn went and moved it. He, he claims that Forrest is, Forrest is uh, alive and intimidating his witnesses not to reveal information about why Forrest was moving the chest all these years. Mm. I mean, this is, this is bizarre shit. Carl Summer is the attorney for Forrest Fenn's estate. And in a way, he's the one who set this whole next thing in motion. So here's what I I issued a subpoena for Jack Stoof because if I get Jack under oath saying I figured out the poem, I can prove there's somebody who actually found the chest. The problem is, if Carl got to question Stoof under oath, so did McCracken. And if McCracken asked Jack where he found the treasure, he might legally have to answer the question. And it turned out, in the days leading up to the deposition, Yellowstone National Park really wanted to avoid that scenario. Well, the, the government is worried that McCracken will ask Jack where he found it. And they're worried that that will result in the place being inundated and being damaged, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. When Yellowstone learned that Jack Stoof might have to sit for a deposition, the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a motion to intervene in the case. If that wasn't clear enough, in an affidavit filed in support of the motion to intervene, Yellowstone's chief ranger, Sarah Davis, wrote that she met with Forrest Fenn and Jack Stoof on Zoom about two months after the treasure was found. They told her where the treasure had been, and she later went to look at the location herself. She wrote that the site would be damaged by visitors. Ultimately, McCracken's case was dismissed. He represented himself, and Fenn's lawyer, Carl Summer, pretty much ran circles around him. The judge made McCracken pay the Fenn family $67,000 in legal fees, plus $100,000 in punitive damages. Jack Stoof never sat for that deposition. But the bigger story here was that the chest had been in Yellowstone all along. So how do you feel? Indicated? <laughs> a little bit. Here's the bottom line. I think both of us believe, you know, within, you put it in azimuth and you do what? A mile? Circle? Yeah. Um, and, you know, somewhere in there. And that's close. I mean, 50 plus searching trips, an arrest, a rescue, sleeping under a bridge. Daryl might not have been successful, but he was right. Well, I just wanted to let you know because uh, that's a pretty big. That's really cool. That's a pretty big yeah, vindication. I mean, well, how do you feel? I mean, we. I mean, before you even talked to me, you talked to other people, other researchers, New Mexico, this, that, that. You know, even Yellowstone. Um, but now that we know, first of all, you know, it was Wyoming, right? We got that far. Yep. Now we know for sure it's Yellowstone. Yep. Um, you know, how do you feel? Yes, you're the same question. I mean, I feel like, you know, like my gut instinct back when I first talked to you and was like, I think this guy's onto something. 
and I feel like uh, you know I was right to believe in you. Thank you. You know, and <laughs> whether or not you know, like you found it or or whatever, like that choice, like in that moment, was correct. But no matter how justified his hunt was, coming close to finding a treasure is not the same as finding a treasure. He was still a guy he needed to find a way to live up to his father's reputation. And this wasn't it. Yeah. All right. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Bye. The last person we talked to on our trip to Peoria, the person everyone said knew Maynard best, was his son, Daryl's brother, Ricky Cannon. Uh, but I gotta get the levels right, so can you just, uh, I guess, talk about something innocuous? Uh, what, what makes a good suit? Ah, uh, good suit. Usually you want a high quality uh, garment that has a half canvas on the inside. Ricky sells high-end suits for a living. And looks like the NBA player Chris Paul, but with glasses. His house is newly built and full of art. The ceiling in the living room is so tall, I don't even have a guess how tall it was. And he and Daryl are pretty close in age. Of all the canons, Ricky's childhood experience is probably the closest approximation of the life Daryl would have had if he'd been raised by his dad. How did he uh, express love? What was his style? He wasn't big on emotions. The one time I remember that really touched me, I was a freshman at Knoxville College, HBCU, and I'd been there for about a semester, so he decides to come down to visit. And so we're at the football game, and um, it's halftime, so I run to the restroom, and I'm, I'm in there, and I'm washing my hands or drying it and whatever. And he looks at me, and he goes, son, I am proud of you. Wow, that was huge. That was like best day ever. Ricky remembers his dad like the other cannons did. Sharp and tireless. Ricky said his grocery and liquor store brought in $700,000 a year. His nightclubs did better. You knew he was the man. You know, you knew he was the owner, the boss. You know, everybody knew Maynard Cannon. When your dad was the boss, but you never knew him, all you want is to feel like you belong in the same family. It seemed like if Maynard had been one thing, it was a provider. A finder of treasure, if you will. But as we got deeper into Maynard's life, Ricky complicated all that. Yeah, he he loved playing a lottery. He loved it. He would go every day to the same spot, it seems, and he would buy, I mean, I don't know how much money he was spending, but the tickets would be so thick. The amount of tickets that he would buy, it was just amazing. By all accounts, Maynard worked like someone who loved making money and spent like someone who hated having money around. So his financial situation was often kind of a roller coaster. I remember 
at one point, there was no food in the house. You know, we were really struggling. The grocery, grocery store was all but done. And um, I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, this is, this is not good. This, I've never seen us this bad before. Daryl's failures, as he had explained them to me, were women and money. Maynard's failures, as Ricky explained them to us, were money and women. You know, I grew up thinking that, you know, you got to have a whole lot of girlfriends, you know. I tried to emulate them. I'd always fall flat on my face, you know. (laughs) But it took me a long time to realize that, man, you can't sustain relationships this way. You know, it's not going to work. When times were good, they were great. And Maynard knew how to have a good time. When times were hard, though... Maynard took off. Um, I think one of the biggest, well, I I hate to say one of the biggest mistakes, but one mistake he made that I I resent was when um, my, after my mom passed and I lived with my grandmother, man, it's kind of hard to say. I lived with my grandmother Dang, I can't believe I'm feeling this kind of emotion. Ricky's mom was Delaphine Porter, and she died of chronic neuromuscular disease in 1960 when Ricky was four years old. And when it happened, Maynard dropped his kids off with their grandma and basically disappeared for a year and a half. You know, not sure what was going on with him, but I imagine he was just trying to get his feet sea legs underneath them and and to regroup and um, which he did he he came back and got me and my uh, other two sisters at the time and we started living on the south side of Peoria with uh, his new wife-to-be his new wife was Edna and it was not the same environment they'd been in at their grandma's house we didn't get that same love it just wasn't there not that they didn't love us it just wasn't shown the same way but I remember meeting his second wife he took me over her house and I'm just a little little snot-nosed kid and I'm looking up at her and I'm looking at him and they're at the door and the next thing you know they're talking but all of a sudden she slaps him and then he slaps her And then they bust out in this passionate kiss. <laughs> like, what the heck is this? <laughs> I knew, even as a kid, I'm like, wait a minute, something's wrong here, you know. But she ended up being his wife and being my stepmother. And I think she really wanted to make it work, but dad was just too much for her. Dad wanted dad wanted to do what he wanted to do and nobody not not even the wife was going to tell him what to do you know okay this is old school stuff right um and it got to a point where um it really caused some mental illness you know with edna she started drinking and it just got out of control and yeah she would take it out and she was brutal 
The childhood experience that Daryl missed out on, that Daryl's trying to compensate for by finding a treasure, it turns out that childhood didn't exist. It was, it was scary, you know, and um, if something triggered her, oh man, it's going to be a long couple of hours probably. And when you miss out on something you really, really wanted, is it better or worse to find out that that thing never existed in the first place? I'll say this, um, Ricky, our, our lives mirrored. I mean, you know, you lost your mom early, and we talked about that, and um, you had your dad, <laughs> um, but you endured quite a bit with a woman you couldn't barely stand, you know, and um, just those feelings you were going through with, with that lady, <laughs> just hearing you say that brought back all that <laughs> for me. Um, very familiar with that. Remember, Daryl had been in and out of foster homes as a kid and sent to the hospital a couple of times by various stepdads. His mom controlled everyone through fear and threats of violence. For the longest time, it had felt like Daryl had to be a different person to fit in with the cannons. But it turns out he can be himself. He and Ricky come from the same place, a house that would have been different if only their father were around. Brown Cannon. You know Brown. You know this story, right? I don't think I do. You know Brown Cannon came off the plantation? Uh-uh, no. When we talked to Wayne Cannon, he zeroed in on the fact that in order to understand his father, Daryl needs to understand his father's father's father and the kinds of patterns that take shape over the course of generations. Brown Cannon came up the plantation somewhere in Ohio. Okay. Met to Philadelphia, Tennessee. Brown Cannon was their great-great-grandfather and the first member of their family to be freed from slavery. His son was Edward, and Edward grew up to be a Pullman porter, sort of like a maitre d' for overnight trains, there to give passengers a premium experience. Pullman porters were known for being neat and clean and carrying themselves with pride. It was one of the very best jobs available to black men at the time. Dress, the neatness of how his material, his meticulous style, how he walked. He was a tall man, tall man, but he had dressed nice. You know, shoes shine, all that stuff. So we say, where the cannons get that from? It comes from, okay, great-grandpa Edward. Edward's son was Sam Henry. Brown came off the plantation. Edward was a Pullman porter. Sam Henry worked on the Manhattan Project, Tennessee Valley Authority. Sam Henry worked at the facility where teams were researching what would become the atomic bomb. And it doesn't matter that he was the janitor. It's still a point of pride for the family. You know, the, as a black man, like I say, it's, it's, I feel good to say, hey, my grandfather worked on an atomic bomb, you yeah. know, that helped in He was the janitor, because yeah. that's all they allowed him to do. Right. But he did that. Sam Henry's son was Maynard Cannon. Then came Daryl. And the key to understanding all of these men, Wayne says, is that every last one of them was deeply flawed as a father. Brown Cannon was free, but angry and abusive. His son Edward was successful, but absent, always riding around the country on trains. Edward's son, Sam Henry, interacted with the people working on the Manhattan Project, but he was unpredictable and violent. 
His kids left the house as soon as they could. And Uncle Maynard told me the Sam Henry's throw bricks at people. Each one carried with them both the violence inflicted by their fathers and the violence that comes with being black in America. Because when they were kids, there was a cousin who was dating a white woman, okay? And they cut off his Johnson, stuffed it in his mouth, and threw him on the train tracks. Yeah. Although, but those are common stories. The thing all the canon men have in common, Wayne says, is they're all trying to deal with this world just a little bit better than their own fathers did. But you know what, as I tell my sons, all you can do is a little bit better than me. Yeah. Don't get caught up into all this no, stuff. No, 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 no. Because you don't know, but you all you do, nah, all you do yeah. could do, son, you do better than me. Yeah. You do better than me. Because I could do, because I said, my dad, even though he was violent, I still know he did better than his dad. The key to being a canon, several of them told us, is trying to do right and improve on your father's example. You have to hold yourself to a high standard, but at the same time, recognize that the deck was stacked even worse against everyone who came before you. So you can forgive them for their failures. That's how they were raised. Because, like I say, the men, where did they find that love? Now, Ed, Edward, Edward, which is a Pullman Porter, I, I don't know, I can't say, I know he got a style, a flair, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't know if he taught, knew how to teach love. I don't know, Brown Cannon need that tender love. Brown Cannon was a slave. He came with the plantation. Wow. Who taught Who taught that tenderness, yeah. that love? Where did any of them yeah. get that? So don't don't fall, you know. You know what? You know what we did? We took care of our families. Uncle Maynard, you know what? Uncle Maynard took care of his kids as best he could. Now, I can't say for you. Now, I don't know. know. He didn't know. He didn't know. See, I, I hear you. I hear you. No. Those that are here. But what I've heard from everyone that I've, that if he would have, he would. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, he, what that's what he would. No, he might. You you tell him you might not be. Able to, he might not went out there to see you. Yeah, but you no. needed some. You know something. Yeah. He would hustle it up yeah. to get it to you. He was yeah. always two or three steps down the road. If his kids, his daughter came to him and said, "I need a hundred dollars, thousand dollars," he tries best to get it to him. They said, "Dad, I need you to show up for here at this event." He might not. He might not. Something else might come up. Right. You know, he might have to yeah. work. Ricky came to terms with what his dad put him through. Daryl feels like for him, there's nothing to forgive. His dad didn't know he ever existed. But does that forgiveness extend to the women that raised them? I went to visit my stepmother one year. Um, just to kind of not smooth things over, but just the hey, look, you know, we had some tough times, but you know, we had we had some good times, and I appreciate everything you did because she did wash her clothes, she cooked dinner for us every day, and I mean big meals, you know, and she was a good cook. And I just wanted her to know I appreciate appreciated that. I just wanted to release that anger from my heart. I didn't want to walk around because I I actually hated her, you know. You're talking about Edna. Yes, I hated her, and Dad allowed it to happen, you know. And yeah, that's why I was saying one of the biggest mistakes was probably marrying her because he he was not ready, 
for a relationship at the time, but I, he was looking for a wife to take care of his kids. That's what he's doing at the time, you know, back in early sixties. And, um, so I did that. I walked away. I felt good about that. You know, I released that and, you know, every now and then I would hear from my stepsister, Hey, mom said, hi, you know, that kind of stuff and all the best. And she passed away 2010, right before a few months before dad did. No parent is perfect all the time. But Ricky was able to recognize that his stepmom was in an impossible situation and forgive her for it. Daryl, however, he's never figured out how to leave his anger behind. Instead, his coping mechanism, his means of survival, was to continually distract himself. That's why he was obsessed with Indiana Jones as a kid, and then Fenn's treasure hunt as an adult. Call him Seattle Siler, just one step ahead of his inner demons. So I struggle with that, letting it go, just as you did. And um, I've gotten better, but I still haven't let that go yet. Uh, it's good to hear that you have, and that you um, have the strength to do that. Um, but I haven't found it yet. It's not to fully let it go. I think at some point you'll know, if it's not too late, you'll know when the time is right. Like I said, when I walked away from that conversation, I felt like huge lift off my shoulders, you know. If Daryl's obsession with the Fen treasure was fueled by the search for his dad, the search for his dad was fueled by his anger towards his mom. And Daryl's holding onto that so tight that's the real difference between him and the canons. I, I get. I take more after my mom, apparently. But uh, I, I do. I, I see my. I see dad in me on occasion. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I really do. Donna will, you know, kid me. She was like, "You just like Mater," you know. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> I do. I love it. I love it when she tells me that because that's my that's my daddy, and I'm 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 so. If there's one value that shines through the Cannon family, it's that you don't have to be perfect to be loved. Yeah, I miss that dude. But that's when Daryl abruptly stands up and ends the interview, and basically bolts out the door. Okay, I'm back. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Appreciate your Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming down. Appreciate I really it. appreciate it. Nah, it's precious so much, man. Thank you. I'll be down. I'm coming down in a good I will. Yeah. Peter, we, we thank you, something. man. Thank you. I, I wasn't sure the interview's over, but thank you. <laughs> We're still going. Okay. Uh, I, appreciate, I hope I gave you what this you wanted. I, I could only tell you what I knew. This is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, uh, I hope someone can speak as well about me after I'm gone in some way. Yeah. Pete. Well, that was a grown-ass man right there, making a grown-ass man decision that I have struggled with. Turn right at this light. Um, more than anybody I've ever known. 
what do you think is different? I mean, that that you still feel like you can't offer forgiveness or my mom has come around in one way and she says the word I love you she doesn't look at you in the eye and, and say it she kind of says it as you're walking out the door your back's turned and yeah. she's closing the door so she's not even though she's saying it now she's not saying it to your heart to your soul She's never ever apologized for any of that craziness. All the marriages, all the foster homes, all the times in the hospital. Never. And never will. What do you get from hanging on to it? Hmm. Absolutely nothing. But there's this little part of me that just wishes that she would just, I don't care if she. You're getting uh, on the freeway right here. I don't care if she wrote a letter. I don't care if she wrote a letter. I don't care if she uh, called an email. If she told somebody, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I could have done better. But that would mean the world to me. So I guess I keep hanging on for that. Yeah. It's never gonna come when I know that. So, as a kid, I would, you know, when she'd go to pick up something to try to whoop my ass, it was like, nah, you ain't gonna see me cry. Um, I try to outlast her, I try to, and that's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm doing now. You're, I, you're still that kid trying not to show that you're afraid. Is that your Or that I'm going to be the first to cave in. Um, and she wins. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I saw a grown man there take that step of um, true forgiveness. He closed that door. And I'm sure he feels... He said he, he feels a lot better for them. And I feel like I'm here hanging on like a piece of shit. I gotta fix that. Hey there, nice to meet you. Hey, that's for you too. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, I'm from Portland. Portland? Oh, yeah. Nice to meet you. You too. Your name Peter? Peter. Dallas. Nice. If a failed treasure hunt was Daryl's attempt to fix a broken childhood, once the treasure was found, the question remained Was that childhood ever fixable? All the way around back. I had asked Daryl for an interview with his mom a couple of times. 
Because in a lot of ways, she was the forest fan of Daryl's search for his dad, dropping clues and hints, stoking Daryl's obsession. But he'd always said no, that their relationship wouldn't survive an interview. Then, in the airport on our way home from Peoria, I asked again, if Daryl needed an apology, why don't I go ask her if there's anything she regrets about the way she raised her kids, anything she'd do differently. And Daryl put me in touch with his nephew, Dallas, who set up an interview with Daryl's mom, Georgia. So I'm her grandson. Yeah. Um, she is, she, I, I guess she just kind of forgot about the appointment today, but I showed up and so she remembers now. Okay. But uh, she's a little sensitive with, uh, you know, Daryl and like just the whole story and everything of Daryl's yeah. background and everything. So she might be a little sensitive to some questions and everything, but I assured her it's just about Daryl's life. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's totally accurate, so. Uh, Daryl couldn't get to a place of letting go of his anger, but I thought maybe his mom could meet him halfway. Daryl wanted an apology. I thought we might get a hint of regret. Whatever happened, she was the source of so much of the strife that had gotten Daryl stuck in an endless treasure hunt. We'd been talking about her, directly and indirectly, for seven years. And now finally, here she was. Hi there. This is George. This is Peter. Hello. Georgia. Nice to meet you. I thought we was going to have an appointment, so. Yeah. I was- Georgia is small, with very defined features, like a kind of beautiful elderly elf. Her white hair is piled up in a fashionably messy bun. She acts like she's used to running the show. He's my hearing aid. <laughs> okay. She has a really hard time hearing. She gotcha, goes, so gotcha. The louder, the better. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to be loud without sounding like you're yelling at someone, which makes it tough to ask sensitive questions. I wanted to know why she never told Daryl who his father was. I also knew I couldn't ask that directly. Your entire career, you will not have met a beast like this, Daryl texted me beforehand. The moment you mention my dad, all hell will break loose. And that was an overstatement, but it was not an easy interview. You're gonna be- he, he wants you to sit here. No, I don't, I don't want this recorded. Okay. I'm sorry. Not unless I have a attorney present. The only people who bring microphones into her home are from Child Protective Services, Georgia said. But I already knew that questions about her parenting would end the interview. So I said I wasn't here to cause her any trouble. I just had questions about Daryl's life. Any questions she didn't want to answer, she didn't have to answer. But then, once she agreed to let me record the interview, she didn't shy away from anything. Most of the time, she beat me to it. I think I I just want to start, can you just tell me, like, what Daryl was like as a kid? This is all about Daryl's life. Can you just tell me... What he was like as a kid? I knew it was coming. What Daryl was like when I he was a kid? I read his lips, okay. Daryl was an outcast to the family. Okay, so I'm going to tell you right up now. Because with my family, you understand, they're very, very highly prejudiced. I mean, really super prejudiced. From George's perspective, she did her best. As a poor white mother of a mixed-race kid in the 60s, the deck was stacked against her, too. 
Yeah, we were poor. We didn't have much. But Daryl was a very, very smart, intelligent person. She had to make compromises. It wasn't ideal. But Daryl made it. As his mother, Georgia takes pride in that. And Daryl should, too. But I understand, Daryl, what he's going through. And I told him, hey, you did a beautiful job on your life. I mean, look at him. Making six figures, living on the beach in Miami. And all the thanks she gets is a reporter sent to hassle her. And at that point, her body language is like, I'm done talking. I've said everything I have to say. Why? Just tell me, why, in your words, why is he doing this? This story? Yeah. I think because it's... In your own opinion. It's the story of his life. Like, looking for this treasure, the reason he's so obsessed. The treasure became, you know, a way to do something besides be angry. And I think he's looking for a way to let go of that anger, but he doesn't know how. I wasn't telling Georgia anything she didn't already know. But I think I did prove to her that I knew her son, what the two of them were fighting about. And she kept talking. I understand. Well, I'm trying to tell you, I understand his life. I understand the heartaches, the, the everything, because it affected me. Okay? I love my son. I want to fight with him. I want him to be here. And it's really putting a hard relationship. I call him and call him and call him. And once in a while, maybe I hear him once or twice. I want to get a relationship with him. I'd love to have a relationship with him. But as long as I know he's okay and he's fine, I've accepted it. You know what I mean? It hurts like hell. Excuse me. But he just won't let go. I mean... So I get to talking about the little things he did to kid. He was a treasure hunter. He'd disappear on us, we'd be out in the mountains, and he'd be digging. He loved to find treasures. I found things that he dug when he was a little kid. He the, thought that was the biggest treasure. That Daryl did? Yes. Can I see the things, the treasures that he found uh, as a kid? Can you show Oh, the little things? Yeah. They're rocks. I just, I'm curious. They're right there. They've been there all the time. <laughs> So these are these are rocks that Daryl found, for gold. and you kept these. Huh? You've kept these since yeah. Daryl was a kid. Yeah, I had these for years. I keep them out as memories. It, yeah. Things were given to me means a lot to me from the kids and stuff. Thanks. I keep them out. Yeah, yeah. You know. Keeping the rocks your son found as a kid isn't proof that you provided the kind of love he needed. But it cracked the door open on the idea that maybe their relationship is an extreme version of what it can be like to be a parent. She sees all the things she did and sacrificed for her son. All Daryl can see are the things she hid from him. I didn't know what the family was going to do. He was married. This guy, he got married during the time and he had family. Okay, you can't just go walk in there. Here I am, you know, everything's going to be beautiful. It's not going to work that way, though. It's not going to work that way. So you try to seal that information from him so you won't lose him because who you got to protect him. Only me, right? Whatever else she did as a mother, Georgia says, she fought for her kids. In fact, one way to see Georgia is as someone who has spent so much time fighting, she doesn't know how to do anything else. She got stuck there. So she's still fighting. It almost sounds like you're fighting to keep a relationship with Daryl, 
but you're fighting with Daryl to keep that relationship. Does that sound right? Yeah, I am. I still do. I get very defensive. I start getting defensive with him, <laughs> you know, because when he start, you know, I blow up. I do. It's just a habit. Hiding Daryl's father from him and standing by that decision has reduced their relationship to a one-note battle, a fundamental disagreement about whether Georgia did the right thing. Did she fight for her son the right way? Would you do anything differently if you could? Is there anything that you would do differently to preserve the relationship with Daryl? No, I don't think so. I mean, you sound that's pretty cruel and harsh, but I try to explain you. I'd done everything I could possibly with him, okay, to give him the kind of life he needed, but I know it wasn't with what he wanted. I mean, you may think I'm the worst mother in the world. I don't care. I don't care what who thinks that, okay? I mean, because I know I fought for everything, everything he did for his education, the kind of life he wanted, you know, and I wasn't going to let that go. I came here looking for some kind of reconciliation between Daryl and Georgia, hoping to understand her side of a story that started out about Forrest Fenn and a hidden treasure, but came to be about the consequences of hiding anything valuable. Intentionally or not, both Georgia and Fenn created treasure hunts that better served the hiders than the hunters. And neither accounted for the desperation their hunt would inspire. But Georgia doesn't have an apology for Daryl. And Daryl can't forgive her without one. So the more I reach out to do him, the more he backs away. So I give up. All I can do, I let him do it on his own. You know what I mean? I can't force him to do it. But sometime I hope in my older days that he'll come and reconcile. Maybe we can talk and we could work this out together. But if we can't, there's nothing I can do. If Daryl and Georgia can't ever find peace, which it seems like they won't, it might be that getting stuck on an endless treasure hunt, filling the empty space inside with a quest for hidden valuables, is actually a pretty good alternative for both of them. It had always been the one place Daryl and his mom could coexist, the one thing that kept them from losing each other completely. Like I say, we haven't had much of a conversation. You know, we don't, I just call and ask him, and I just want to, yeah, I'm fine, I'm okay. Then he talked about his treasures. So I said, that's great. I said, well, tell me about the treasures. Then he explained it to me, you know what I mean? And it made me feel good, because he has something to look forward to. In any story about a treasure hunt, the best version has someone taking home a treasure at the end of it. At least near the end. But Daryl's story was different. It was, I thought, about a treasure hunter who needed to quit hunting. It wouldn't be over until Daryl broke free. But I was wrong. That's the book. By Byron Price. When Daryl was at his low point in the treasure hunt, staying in a stranger's trailer and sleeping under a bridge, 
The first step in slowing down his hunt was taking a job far away on the East Coast. But the second step? He got obsessed with a different treasure hunt. And so, this is the treasure hunt. That's one of the photos that you, that you have to look at. This treasure hunt came from a book called The Secret, and it was published in the early 80s, long before the Manifest Your Dreams self-help franchise, but only a couple of years before Forrest Fenn was diagnosed with cancer and wrote his poem. In fact, there's some debate about whether the third line in the poem, I can keep my secret where, is a reference to this treasure hunt. They show you 12 photos, uh-huh. um, and then they give you 12, um, more than 12, different descriptions of cities. The two hunts are similar in that they're based on clues in a poem that you follow to a hidden, potentially buried treasure. But in The Secret, there are drawings full of clues to go along with the poems. And where Fenn's treasure is worth something like a million dollars, The Secret's 12 gemstones are worth more like a thousand dollars each. So it's treasure hunting for the sake of treasure hunting. The Forrest Fenn treasure hunt without Forrest Fenn's ego. And where Fenn sent searchers on a chase through the Rocky Mountains, the secret's jewels are hidden in cities in the U.S. and Canada. The trick is that you don't know which poems reference which city, or which drawing is connected to the different poems. Oh, you got to figure out which clues go to which city? Right, exactly. Okay. And then you got to find the treasure. Gotcha. On top. So it's a lot of stuff. Daryl thought he needed to find a treasure. But what he really needed was a hunt. For all the disappointment, heartache, jail time, and homelessness, he needed to be making connections on the brink of discovery, planning his next trip. Treasure hunting can take over your life, but it's a life. From start to finish, took about three days. That's quick. So this is the photo they give you. I thought that life was gone for Daryl when Fenn's treasure was found. But the secret is Fenn's hunt times 12. And where Daryl got off track before, analyzing Google Earth for hidden clues that weren't there, the secret seems like it's full of drawings that match locations as viewed from above, from satellite view. Um, <laughs> see the bird? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's before you could look at shit on Google, so that would, how hard would that be to find yeah. without the internet? Yeah. Right? Nowadays in Google Earth. Here was a search that played to Daryl's strengths. Visual clues, populated search locations, not enough money involved to lose your job over. Forrest Fenn may have created the greatest, most iconic treasure hunt in American history. But this one's better. I mean, I went to bed at three, you three days. You meant three full days. Oh, but I meant three. You know how I get locked in shit like that. You saw it. You say... Look at pictures and, and put clues together. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it was built for you. I'm all day. This book was written for Daryl Siler. It should be called The Secret, The Siler Secret. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I got very little sleep. I was, I was on my stomach. You gotta get down. Gotta get, I know it's that. Yeah. And uh, give us Once I started reading every single page of that book and understanding there's just enough of the story in those, in those, um, riddles and, and goblins and all that stuff there's just enough to draw out from that that's understandable it, it gives you an aha moment this culminates everything that you're looking for of where the the the, the, the final spot really is everything 
So I looked at it again, redid it, and this time, you know, because last time I didn't have any of the uh, um, of the added clues. So the trip was a letdown. I mean, only because when I got there, obviously there's things that you don't see on even on Google Earth. Then I realized, okay, but here's the real um, where you know where it's at. I'm not so I'm not I'm not totally clear on that one. Like I like like enough of these other clues line up that like I'm still I'm still thinking like man like you're probably really close, but I don't I don't think that's the right interpretation of that clue. Um, it just I don't know worrying. Well, it's well, too here's the thing. indirect. Here's the important thing about that too is that you know uh, yes that one is probably the most subjective clue of all of them. Yeah. Um, Missed Fortune is an Apple original podcast produced by High Five Content in association with 30 Minutes West and Outside Magazine. The show is written and hosted by me, Peter Frickwright, with writing, editing, composing, and sound design by Robbie Carver. Story editing by Michael May. Additional production by Ann Bailey. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Final mix by Stephen Cray. Archival research by Jeevan Nagra. Michael Derman is our line producer. Accounting by Matt Rock. Additional consulting from Gene McHale Waite. With thanks to Ellie Hurdy for sharing your life with me. And once showing me an article about a guy who'd been swept down a river in Yellowstone looking for treasure. The executive producer for High Five Content is Andrew Jacobs. Executive producers for 30 Minutes West are Peter Frickwright and Robbie Carver. Thanks to Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kyes, and Michael Roberts, director of audio. Legal services provided by Chris Keene and Diana Palacios. Voice work in this series by Alex Ward, Ryan Bell, Jamie Petito, and Michael Kaplan. And a special thanks to Daryl Seiler and his entire family for telling the story so well and then trusting me with it. This has been quite a ride. I'm glad we made it. And thank you for listening.